It's been almost a year since an earthquake ripped through the heart of Christchurch, killing 185 people, closing down the central city and destroying thousands of homes. Twelve months on, there's still uncertainty about the city's future. So what will happen to the central city, homes, businesses and even the ground beneath people's feet? When the earthquake hit Christchurch on February the 22nd last year, the central city was the base for over 400 retail shops, more than 130 cafes, bars and restaurants, along with thousands of office workers, shoppers and tourists. Today, a large cordon fence blocks public access to 24 prime CBD blocks. Inside, it's an eerie ghost town, where the only workers are contractors employed to demolish the hundreds of damaged and dangerous buildings. Over 600 central city buildings have already been pulled down, with more being added to the demolition list with each aftershock. And more than 6,000 residential homes have to go because of damage to the land beneath them. I'm Rachel Graham. Along with my colleague Bridget Mills, in this insight we've looked at how various people are coping with living through one of New Zealand's worst natural disasters. And the challenges of recreating a city centre and a home for those displaced in the suburbs. Immediately after the quake hit, a triage centre was set up in Latimer Square for people who were being pulled from collapsed buildings, including the nearby CTB building, where it soon became apparent that more than 100 people had been killed. One of those who was able to escape from the CTB building was Pip Ramby, who was on the top floor at a meeting with workmates when the earthquake struck. I spoke to her in Latimer Square about three hours after she'd been pulled from the building. There was an initial violent shake and, and um, then it was really disorientating because things started tipping and um, it, it, it was, it, the noise was phenomenal. Almost a year on, Pip Ramby says she's still amazed that people passing by stepped in so readily to help rescue them. The rescuers got to us really, really quickly so we were, which of course we, I remain inordinately grateful for because... Um, they climbed up onto such an unstable structure. They risked a lot getting us out, and we were in a depression, so they were lifting us out, and they had most of us out before that first big aftershock hit, so within inside 20 minutes. She says she often thinks of a woman called Eust who came to her aid. There was such a lot going on. There was panic, and people were running, and, you know, down... Madras to get to Latimer Square, and I was so anxious that I was slowing her down, you know, and I was keen for her to get herself to safety, but she wouldn't, and um, she even cleared debris away from in front of me, because I'd lost my shoes in the fall, so I wouldn't cut my feet. Yeah, it was um, extraordinary kindness. One of Pip Ramby's workmates died in the collapse, and several others suffered serious injuries. She says when her company was looking for a new location, they knew the workers wanted something single-storey and away from the shadow of any nearby building. I, I've really struggled to go into multi-level buildings. Um, I've struggled to go back near town. I haven't been into the, the new set-up in Cashel Mall, for example. Um, yeah, being near the city in and of itself, I find um, triggering still. Um, yeah, and I'm, I, I now do things like um, <laughs> I am careful about where I park. I don't park. I wouldn't park under in a, an underground car park, for example. 
The Pine Gould Corporation building also collapsed in February's quake, killing 18 people and leaving many more hurt, some with lifelong injuries. Dozens were trapped in the rubble for hours, including Nick Walls, who was working on the second floor of the five-storey building at the accountancy firm Leach & Partners. The 30-year-old threw himself under his desk when the shaking started. And then everything just collapsed. The whole building was shaking so much. It sort of went vertically first and then horizontally and it was all over the show and then everything just collapsed down and felt the building concertina, which was basically our level two collapsing onto one and all the other levels above us were collapsing as well. Nick Walls was stuck in the rubble with just half a metre of space around him for 10 hours. Of the 12 people working in his office at the time, 11 were eventually pulled out alive but one of the directors died. Nick Walls was the last in his office to be rescued, trapped in an area that was difficult to get to and in the most heavily crushed part of the building. He says it was comforting to hear the rescuers' voices, but to see their faces after 10 hours of being trapped in the dark was an amazing feeling. And when they finally got to me and they, they got to my feet first, and uh, I could see their torches coming towards me, and I was like, yep, I'm over here. And, and then they were sort of looking around, and then they are like, where are you? And I said, oh, I'm waving my leg, I'm waving my leg. And then they said, oh, there it is, nice shoes. <laughs> they made a bit of a joke out of it, which um, you know, made it a lot easier because it, I was in a fair bit of pain by then. Nick Wall spent six weeks in hospital, having surgery and learning to walk again. Surgeons cut out half the muscle from his buttocks as it had been crushed and destroyed. They also removed some of the muscles from his hip. He now walks with a cane and understands he's unlikely to fully recover. But although life will never be the same again, the pain and trauma of the disaster doesn't get him down. I've never had a nightmare about it. I'm, I've always been quite open about talking about it and have talked about it right from the start. And I think if you talk about it often enough and you focus on the positives that came out of it, it shouldn't impact you as much. Nick Wall started working again as soon as he could get an internet connection at the hospital and he was back full time at the firm's new single storey office in the suburb of Rickerton just a few months later. He has no concerns about working in a high rise building again and doesn't agree with the council's central city proposal to limit new buildings to a maximum of seven storeys. He fears only allowing low-rise new buildings could be detrimental to Christchurch's rebuild. We have got a really good opportunity to do it properly and to, to have the most modern CBD in the world, so we've got to make sure it's designed right. Along with restrictions on high-rise buildings, the council's central city recovery plan also proposes a riverside park a new sports and swimming facility and the creation of food, shopping and cultural areas and comes with a price tag of around $2 billion. Before the quakes, the City Council had wanted to increase the number of inner city residents from around 8,000 to 30,000 within 20 years. And though now not specific about its targets, the City Council still sees increasing the number of inner city residents as a key goal of its rebuild plan. So this is our place in Liverpool Street. So as you can see, it's sort of sandwiched between a, a relatively tall building and then a, a right-of-way in Kenton Chambers beside us. Up um, until February 22nd, Christine Mann, her husband and two children, were some of those inner-city residents the council is so keen to encourage. She was at home with her nine-year-old son Alex, who was off school sick, when the earthquake struck. 
they grabbed their emergency bag and headed down to Latimer Square. And as they left their home, they passed the Cafe Joe's Garage, and the extent of the destruction became clear. Went past Joe's, saw that was down, saw the manager there, and he said he had a staff member trapped. Um, yeah, and I think it's Alex, Alex knew people in there. He was really concerned. They have not been able to return to live in their home since that day and have only had brief visits to remove their possessions. The family have now bought a house in the suburbs, but she says she's not put off living in central Christchurch again at some stage in the future. I'd love to live in there again. I really would, but maybe give it 10 years or so. Uh, I think for a while, for us in that area in particular, it's going to be a building site for a long time. And yeah, and also because we didn't have a lot of residential neighbours, you know, we didn't have, um, we sort of knew the business people around us, and that's what made the area community for us. You know, we'd, we'd know the people coming in and out each day, and, you know, it's changed a lot, I guess, for us. And despite her traumatic experiences, Christine Mann supports the push for more central city residents. I think if they can if they can get families and people living in town, that's going to be what gives it its heart. You know, it's all very well having businesses and and you know nightclubs and bars and different things, but if people are living in there and they make it an attractive place for people to want to be there, uh, it'll be fantastic. The Mans are among the thousands whose homes have been taken from them by the earthquakes. Across suburban Christchurch. The land beneath around 6,000 homes has been deemed so badly damaged it can't be lived on. Much of the worst affected land follows the Avon River through the eastern half of Christchurch, with swathes of homes up to three blocks back from the river needing to be demolished. The suburb of Avonside is one of the worst hit areas. I think it's 800 square metres but I always get mixed up. This is where our chickens and rabbits were down here. In the earthquakes of September 2010, Jackie Lilburn's Avonside home suffered some damage, the backyard was flooded due to liquefaction, and the sewer system failed, leaving the family dependent on a portaloo for three months. But even after the February earthquake, when the house was again surrounded by water and the portaloo was back again, she was still hopeful they could stay and rebuild. So she was devastated when the land was red zoned in June last year. And the fact is, it's not just a house, it's our home. And it's our community, it's our neighbours, but I guess after September when we lost the school and the church, and, and it moved, so it stayed together, but it's no longer just down the road. So when you lose your home, it's not just your house, it's your home, it's your neighbours, it's, and it's a familiar way of life. The family have decided to accept the government offer to buy their land, and their insurance company has agreed to pay for a rebuild on their home. They're now looking for a new property or house in Christchurch, but after making five unsuccessful offers on properties, they are finding it a struggle to compete with the thousands of prospective buyers suddenly in the market. If they could have said, here is the same size section as what you've got there, go there, build your house there, that would have just made life so much easier. Instead they said, here's a bunch of money and throw us to the wolves. And I mean, one real estate agent said to me the other day, well, you people all got substantial sums of money, and I don't think that's actually true, but now why shouldn't we have a slice of it? She says they're encountering a number of properties with prices up to $100,000 above the government valuation, despite being damaged in the earthquakes. Real estate agents and vendors don't seem to want to tell you these. You know, they don't want to 
I mean, why do I want to pay top dollar for a house that has damage and that may be hit by more earthquakes? So chances are we'll have another earthquake. I want a home, but I don't want to pay top money for something that... I don't want to buy someone else's problems. I've had enough of my own. Tom McBrearty's Avonside home was one of about 20 that suffered serious damage in the September 2010 quake. At that point, he took on the role of fronting the group Cancern, which was formed to act as an advocate for those in earthquake-damaged homes. But after February, the number of affected homeowners his group represents swelled to around 6,000. He says the government offer to purchase red-zoned land and homes at the rateable value, or for people to sell the land to the government and enter negotiations with their insurer, has been a good deal for some, but many others will be left out of pocket. When you're in a Bexley, where you've had high-value housing put on low-value sections, it's extremely hard and, and very, very difficult for those people to, to come to terms with in terms of equity and being able to rebuild, rebuy. He says for many people dealing with the insurance companies has been very stressful and the situation gets trickier when the insurance company will only pay for repairs, not a rebuild or when there is a dispute over when the major damage occurred. Some of them are dealing with issues like uh, an adjudication that says all of that that was there before any of the earthquakes, therefore it's not going to be paid for, versus, well, that was February, that was June, that was September. So then they've got the double indemnity of uh, EQC two payouts, all those sort of things. And so uh, it's... It, it is pedestrian to many, many people and very difficult to deal with and live with because we've still got to work, we've still got to live and we've got, still got to be accommodated somewhere. Mr McBrearty says people are also going through the sense of loss which comes with having to leave a home through no choice of your own. He says for him the worst point in leaving his home of 28 years was when he was doing a final visit with an insurance assessor. Every year a group of swans used to arrive on the river and always at the same time, within a few days of each other, each year. Um, and for me the distress point was the... The swans arrived at that point when I was talking to an insurance guy and that, that really hit home, because that's the things you're never going to see again. By April next year, the government says all red zone properties will have to be abandoned and the houses demolished. But it's still unclear what exactly will happen with the land. The government has said some of it may be repaired at some stage in the future and resold. But many former residents want it to become a riverside park and say this would make being torn from their land slightly easier. While some are struggling with verdicts ordering them to leave, others are finding it equally hard to still not know where they stand. The government has yet to release its decision on whether just over 2,500 homes can remain. The majority of them are hillside properties, including many overlooking the seaside suburb of Sumner. Each year the coast-to-coast -coast race ends in Sumner, although last year it was moved due to the severe quake damage to the area. A Sumner resident, Mirren Dunmill, says it's great to see the race return this year, but she says the crowds watching the contestants arrive are definitely smaller. Mirren Dunmill's house sits halfway up a steep cliff overlooking Sumner Beach, and a cable car is the easiest way to access her home. This thing survived somehow or other. It's been engineered, checked you know, a couple of times. Clipped the shut? Yeah, thanks. Her remu panelled classic wooden villa 
is one of the 2,000 hillside homes still waiting for a decision on whether the land is stable enough for them to remain. She says the most frustrating thing is the ever-changing time frames. It was going to be before Christmas, then we heard it was going to be um, at the end of January, then we heard it was going to be the second week of February, then we heard it was going to be the end of February. Now last night all of a sudden it's the end of June. Now what happened? Why all of a sudden is that such a different story? Mind you, nothing's been in writing. There's been no actual communication. She says there's been fantastic local groups who have tried to keep people informed and involved. But as time moves on, people become despondent, and the gap left by a lack of information has been filled with rumour and speculation. There's enough people, I would have thought, on the ground to have a community officer through the community boards, get them back involved, empower them to do the job that we voted them for. We have faith in them, whereas we don't have in the senior management of the council, um, and, and talk to each other. And... They should have files on properties that are coordinated with the insurance companies. There's all these disparate groups, each with their own sets of documentation that seem to take forever to go round and round circles. She says while she is increasingly frustrated with the slow pace of decision-making, the experience of living through thousands of aftershocks, going for seven weeks without power, and knowing people have lost so much more than just homes, does keep things in perspective. This feeling is especially strong given her husband was at his shop in Cashel Mall when the February earthquake hit, and he saw the devastation in the city firsthand. And he actually helped rescue Shane, the guy from the Trocadero, and got him into hospital, and he had a guy die in his arms, and so he's been really traumatised. Um, and with the loss of the business, it's, it's changed our lives, everything you know, about the earthquake has changed the way we see the world, the way... We view how lucky we are <laughs> to be here in a house that's still standing and, um, and we're still standing when others are so not so lucky. Most buildings have now been demolished and cleared from Cashel Mall. The area has been the first to reopen to the public with a pop-up shopping mall. However, thousands of other businesses are still blocked off behind the inner city cordons, forcing some to close down, while others have managed to relocate, if only temporarily, elsewhere. But as my colleague Bridget Mills has been finding out, commitment to return and rebuild in the city is strong. The Canterbury Employers Chamber of Commerce says the business sector has fared well over the past year. 90% of businesses within the four avenues, an area generally considered to be the heart of the city, are still operating. But the working population has suffered. IRD figures show that as many as 1,000 workers a month have been leaving the city since February, and the real influx of construction workers is yet to be seen. For those who were trading in the quake-ravaged CBD, which has been out of bounds to the public for a year now, the challenges to keep afloat have been immense. But the Chamber of Commerce estimates about 50% are planning to come back to the city when it finally reopens. One of those is a Spanish chef and restaurateur, Pedro Carazzo, who was planning to rebuild his life after the earthquake ripped it apart. He lost his popular inner-city restaurant on Worcester Street, which had run for more than 30 years. The earthquake also destroyed his family home. But worst of all, he lost his son. When the quake hit, Mr Carazzo knew his son would be at work, teaching at a language school in the CTV building. He ran to see if he was okay. And you arrived and then I saw the building completely collapse. So I started screaming for him, his name, Christian, Christian. And one of the Japanese um, students came and said, oh, you look for Christian? I said, yes, I'm the father. And um, 
he told me, you know, when he gone down for lunch, my son would just come off to have lunch with another teacher. 35-year-old Christian Carazzo Chandler was one of 115 people who perished in the CTV building collapse. The year has been a struggle for Pedro Carazzo. He doesn't sleep well and is on medication to help him deal with the shock. He and his wife and children have moved between various friends' houses around the city and only in the last three months have they all been under the same roof. But despite the immense hardship, his love of Christchurch and commitment to rebuilding his life here is unwavering. I have a feeling, you know, I want to be part of the new city. I don't want to be out. I want to be in the centre of the city again. You know, the city gave me, I mean, Christchurch gave me a lot of precious and happiness, so I'm Yes, I mean, I'm not young men now, <laughs> but I want to spend the rest of my life here. Pedro Carrazzo has plans for his new restaurant drawn up and wants to rebuild it as soon as possible, but the process is slow and he knows it. The site is in the central city red zone and he still needs council approval and consents before he starts building. His business interruption insurance runs out this week, as it will for thousands of other business owners in the city. With those payments drying up, the need to find an alternative income is paramount, so he's planning to open at a temporary location. My nephew and I, uh, we decide we need to do something, so we come with the idea to have a container. It's not a real container. Some boxes come from China, and they put it together here, so we're going to have a, like a temporary kitchen. We decide to say, well, what are we going to sell? We say, lamp shoulders, take away. <laughs> Pedro Carrazzo's new takeaway shop is due to open in about six weeks, alongside other pop-up bars and food outlets along Papanui Road. Joe Art's printing business is not so easy to relocate. The large, heavy equipment required to do the job has been impossible to move out. The family business on High Street is also behind the inner-city cordons, but unlike Pedro's restaurant, the building is still intact. See that? This is why the whole front of the building is still here. This one piece of steel stopped these two common U-beams from pulling out. This U -beam Joe Arts believes his business could be reopened as soon as the power is restored and the badly damaged buildings next door are removed or made safe. And he's frustrated that one year on, he's no closer to reopening than he was immediately after the earthquake. You've got this fence. Anything inside the fence, you can shut down. And so people on outside of the fence should realise how lucky they are because they can run their business. Inside the fence, you're told to go to hell. It would have been easier to pull the building down. And then what have you got? You've got no nothing. And that's what Christchurch is going to realise. It's got nothing afterwards because everything's been made easier to pull down. Great place for parking cars. He says dealing with the Canterbury Earthquake Recovery Authority has been like dealing with the worst kind of bloated and inflexible bureaucracy. The frustration is the single-minded lockout that is probably unprecedented in the world of a commercial area. The state taking all control with your risk, um, the state making arbitrary decisions. Earthquake strengthening work, which was already well underway when the September 4th quake hit, has meant Joe Art's building has survived the quake well. And even though the business has been shut since February's earthquake, he has no doubt the work was worthwhile. We're very happy what happened to us because we have estimated we had two brickies at the top on the scaffolding, right on the top of the building, and they survived because the front didn't pull off. 
and we had two builders at the bottom on the front and they survived and probably anyone who was walking under the canopy at the time. So we actually think effectively we saved lives for only $170,000 worth of work. Restrengthening work also saved the Curatius House, a two-storey council-owned heritage building in the Botanical Gardens. Jackie Garcia-Knight and her husband Javier Garcia have run the restaurant from the house for 12 years. The building stood up well in the quake but has been shut down all year while assessments of the damage took place. When they took over the heritage building in 2000, the couple strengthened it to meet 60% of the building code. They now plan to re-strengthen it to meet 100% of the new code. The aim was to reopen the restaurant in time for last year's Rugby World Cup, but that deadline came and went and still there was no sign of progress. Well, they had to get an engineer's report and that took nine months. Um, and I think they're just so overwhelmed. It's a city, it's a city council-owned building, and it's a heritage building. So of course, nothing's nothing simple in those respects. The damage in Christchurch is so huge, and the city council, for example, has 1,600 buildings with damage. I think that has been overwhelming for 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 everybody really. As the days and months have passed by, the boredom of not working has prompted the couple to look at other ways to earn money. Javier Garcia sells chorizo and Spanish peppers from the farmers' markets. The couple are also planning to partially reopen on the site of their restaurant, if only to sell coffees in the garden. The couple are keen to tap into the tourism market, which is beginning to recover after a massive 40% slump following February's quake. Visitor numbers have picked up, particularly from countries in Asia, but by the end of last year, tourism was still down by as much as 20%. Jackie Garcia-Knight says it's important to rebuild as soon as possible, so visitors can see the city is functioning. We can see on our doorstep there's a lot of tourists walking around, um, and so if we can get open as soon as possible, that, that we don't want them to walk away with a negative idea that there's nothing to do in Christchurch. On the morning of our interview, the couple had just met with the Christchurch City Council and were told the restaurant could finally reopen in September this year. Javier Garcia says the rebuild is taking longer than anyone thought, but if people are patient, the benefits of being part of the new city will be worth it. In Christchurch, it's going to be a lot of investment of rebuild the city. It's going to be a very vibrant uh, city with a lot of opportunities to do a business and the business that they are open now they are doing very well and it's a matter of hang a little bit until they start again. You know? Good things come to those who wait, <laughs> we hope. One business which is about to restart on its original premises is the Arch House video store Allison Videoland. While all around it buildings are being torn down or extreme measures are being taken to prop them up while strengthening work can be carried out, Alice's building, a 1930s former government structure, looks untouched. Inside, renovations are underway for the relaunch of Alice's as a boutique art house cinema and DVD rental. Alice's owner, Jeremy Stewart, says he's been pleased with the support he's received from the Canterbury Earthquake Recovery Authority. I've found them to be incredibly um, 
encouraging with what we're doing because um, obviously they want to see parts of the city reopen um, and, and so do we. So I think that everybody's working in the same direction. Alice's cinema and rentals will operate from the back of the building, with C1 Cafe, which used to be based across the road, moving into the front of the building. The former C1 Cafe now lies in a pile of rubble, but owner Sam Krosky says when they realised the building could not be saved, he did look at moving into one of the new hubs, opening in the suburbs of Addington or Sydenham, but decided that they wanted to be part of the new central city. You know, there are a lot of creative things and caravans and containers and, and all that kind of stuff, which is which is awesome and it's kept us entertained this whole time. But our our thing is that we're, we're doing something really permanent, something that says, uh, flies in the face of, of the earthquakes and the rest of it, that people can come to, um, you know, an intimate, beautifully crafted movie theatre or to, to the coffee shop, which hopefully will be here for another 20 years. Their new shared building was built following the Napier earthquake and with deep foundations and solid walls has come through the earthquakes and thousands of aftershocks undamaged. Surrounded by half-demolished buildings and bare sections, Jeremy Stewart says they're conscious they're leading the way in an area which has forever been changed, but are confident people will return. Well, there's nobody else around by the looks of it. Um, I've just done a 180 in front of me, and um, it looks like we're almost one of the last ones standing. Obviously, it's really sad to see what's happened you know, to all the old facades and you know, the historic buildings, but to see this beacon of light right here, um, you know, it gives hope and um, I'm happy that it's uh, going to have many more years in the city. It's hoped the city will finally reopen by Easter, but with aftershocks continuing and the threat of fresh damage to buildings and homes, there are no guarantees those time frames will be met. For the people of Christchurch who have seen many deadlines come and go, living with uncertainty is something they've had to get used to and will continue to have to deal with for months, possibly years to come. I'm Bridget Mills. And I'm Rachel Graham. And that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send us an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or tweet us at rnz underscore insight. The programme was written and presented by me, Rachel Graham. And me, Bridget Mills. It was produced by Philippa Tolley. And technical production was by Chris Adams.